Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Tech, 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 tech talk. Tech, 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 tech talk. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Hello, all you tech junkies out there in the world today. My name is James Eddy, and I'm here talking today with Matthew Dickerson, our resident tech pundit, who has a digital basket full of talking goodies for us. G'day, Matthew. How are you going? Yeah, good, thanks, James. Now, let's get straight into it today and hit up a big topic that has every Australian on guard these days, from about midwinter to early autumn, and that's bushfires. Tell us, Matt, are satellites our answer for bushfire problems? Yeah, look, they may well be, James. I mean, the big thing with with bushfires is trying to get onto them early. And we kind of forgot about our huge bushfire season last year. We had a terrible bushfire season. 18.5 million hectares of land was burnt out across the nation. But then this little pandemic thing came along, and so we tended to focus on that for the last year. A little bit distracted. A little bit distracted. So there's some companies working on some solutions, and one of those solutions is to get onto bushfires before they're bushfires. They're talking about the fact that they can detect a bushfire within one minute of it being started, whether that's a lightning bolt or someone throwing a smoke away carelessly, one minute, which sounds incredible. And I don't know if you call it a bushfire, when it's only been going for a minute, I'm not sure what you call it, it might be a very small fire. It's a potential bushfire. A potential bushfire, that's right. So they're using satellites, they're currently using geostationary satellites. So they're sitting above the earth, we've got some now, some weather satellites, they're watching over the earth, and they're taking snapshots of the earth at the same spot, because the geostationary sits exactly above the same point of earth all the time, rotates. Yeah, about 35,000 kilometres, right? Absolutely spot on. So they're sitting up there, they're taking photos, and you can imagine a photo from that sort of distance away is not that easy to see a little tiny prick of light but there's some work they've been doing and it's a particular uh, technology company or or focus they've had and they've been looking for get ready for it some supernovae in galaxies or stars at about 4.7 billion light years away they've been looking for pricks of light there and they've come up with this really nice algorithm to get rid of all the background noise and just focus on that little prick of light. That's amazing. Using that same technology from a satellite looking down at the ground, picking up a bushfire and ignoring all that rubbish in the background. So they're talking about the 3.9 micron wavelength of light, which we can't see, but the satellite can capture that image. Once they see that light, then they know there's something there. They've got some low Earth orbit satellites they're working on to, to spot further information there. But most importantly... They say 99% of bushfires can be spotted within five minutes and that 65% in one minute. And, and so what are we doing right now to spot bushfires? Well, that sounds great to be able to spot them within one minute. What we're doing now is we're relying on triple O calls typically. And so what happens there, of course, is people have to see smoke. They have to realise there's something going on. Bushfires aren't that friendly where they start. They might start in a, an area that's a bit remote. They might start in the middle of the night. Usually by the time you spot some smoke and then think well I better make a phone call to triple O it is a bushfire it's well and truly raging and then I mean we've seen some of these planes that drop fire retardant on them I think some of them can hold up to 30,000 litres of fire retardant and you see them fly across and they drop this incredible amount of substance on the fire and it seems to do not much because it's so big the fire burning so if they can start to get these fires within that short time frame I think that's absolutely critical. And so, yeah, places like California, they've been suffering bushfires as well. This has been tested somewhere before. Like, yeah. yeah, the same technology that we're talking about that will be used in Australia in the coming years has been tested in California. 850 fires were spotted early, not necessarily within a minute, but spotted early in the last bushfire season in California, and that helped them fight those fires. But the firefighters said it changed the way they fought those fires. It made them more aggressive because 
they knew that the fire wasn't in containment mode, they could actually try and put it out. Because you can imagine, it's pretty disheartening for a firefighter to come along in this huge wall of flames, and they, the best they can do is just try and protect some homes and people and contain the fire. But they can attack it more aggressively, which is fantastic. Listen, if we pardon the pun, we'll go on to another hot topic, and that stirs up conversation in pubs and in lunchrooms all over the country. Let's talk about electric cars. Sure. So, so which tiny EV is now beating Tesla as the best-selling EV, that's electronic vehicle, right? Yep. Uh, or sorry, electric vehicle, in the world so far? Yeah, look, Tesla have been getting some impressive numbers, and people that are always keen to, to put Tesla down have noted that they've sold about 35,000 Tesla Model 3s alone in the first two months of this year, which sounds pretty impressive. And Tesla likes to sit at the top of the electric vehicle sales charts, but there's a little company in China, and when I say little company, it's probably in relative terms, <laughs> um, but they've sold 56,000 of these cars so far this year. Now, it is specifically made for the Chinese short commute. It's a tiny little car. It's 660 kilograms, so wow. if, you, if you compare that to a Model 3, they're about 1.6 tonnes, so it's about a tonne lighter than a, than a Model 3 Tesla. Uh, it can fit four people, but I reckon they'd want to be four relatively compact slim people. gentlemen, yeah. compact people thank you yes uh, they sell for five thousand seven hundred dollars in aussie terms so very cheap oh, top wow. speed I, I don't know i'd want to be driving it out on the highway 100 kilometers an hour is the top speed of it but they've sold fifty six thousand so far in the first two months of this year wow well i guess you know here in australia we, we sort of think oh well that's no good for if you want to drive to broken hill from dubbo or you know for the big distances we travel in, in the country but as a little town runabout exactly right and i think that's the point of most of the evs that i'm seeing marketed at the moment the real point of them is they're great for town run around if you take a, an example in a regional city for example it might be drop the kids off to school go down to sport maybe do the shopping so you, you're just doing those smaller number of kilometers each day the range of this particular vehicle is 170 kilometers which doesn't sound like it's going to get that many people excited but most people in their average commute their daily commute they're not driving 170 kilometers if they are they probably need to move where they live because it's <laughs> a bit too far to go in a day but most of the time that sort of range is going to be more than enough that you'd use in a day yeah, and it might, yeah, might be your second car rather than your, your first car. And that's a point I make to a lot of people. Families that have got two cars, and often they will consider their second car, the one they mainly use to run around town, as their second, as electric vehicle, have their primary car, their car that they can fill up with petrol and keep driving till the end of the earth and have that for their, their main holiday vehicle, if you like. Yeah. Big business versus government always makes for a really high-level drama. Can you tell us why has the Consumer Protection Agency in Brazil slapped Apple with a $2 million fine? Yeah, it's interesting, James. They, they put, hit them with a fine just because they didn't put a charger in the box. Now, Apple made a big announcement. Sorry, they've year. taken the charger out of the they've box. They've taken the charger out of the iPhone 12, and they made a big announcement last year about this. This was the environmental message from Apple. They said, most people have got chargers. You don't need a charger. So here you go. Have the phone without a charger. The, the minor issue was that the cable they gave you was a cable that had the lightning connector on one end, but the other end it had a USB Type-C connector. Most people do have chargers at home, but they've got USB Type-A. So most people found they had to go and buy a charger anyway, so it wasn't really great for <laughs> saving the environment. But, but Brazil in particular took exception to this, and they said that they had in, engaged in misleading advertising, selling a device without the charger and unfair terms. Not sure about the misleading advertising, because Apple haven't said that they include a charger in it, but this is the Brazil, the, the equivalent of our ACCC, see in Australia. Um, so $2 million for Apple, well, that's probably a few seconds of sales for Apple. So I'm not sure they'll be too concerned about it, but it will be interesting to see if 
other companies or other organisations, similar organisations around the world, say that they've done the wrong thing as well. It's an interesting precedent, isn't it? Yeah. And if Apple stops supplying the charger in the box, what happens with your other Android phones and whatnot? Well, yeah. Samsung's already started, the S21. They've, they've released it without a charger in the box. What is fascinating, though, is that the European government agencies have said that they want... USB-C type chargers to be standard because they want to reduce the amount of waste we have from all the different companies having proprietary chargers. So essentially everyone else is going to USB type C except Apple. Now they might in the future, they've gone with that with their iPad Pros, they haven't gone that way with their phones yet, but that would be a much better way to save the environment is to just have a standardised charging cable. And so you're telling me that I'm going to need to tell my kids to start looking after their chargers as well? I, I wouldn't <laughs> expect you to perform miracles James, so <laughs> there's only so much I can expect you to do. Fair enough. When we can finally fly internationally again, will the internet on planes be any better? I hope so, because I have tried the internet that was on planes in international flights in the past, and it was expensive. You know, I could live with that if I had something really important to do. It was a bit slow. Oh, I'm up in a plane, so that's fair enough. It dropped in and out. It was, it was not a great experience. It was one of those things you did, so you could say, hey, cool, I used the internet on a plane, and then stop using it after a few minutes. The, the fascinating part about that was they were using at the time geostationary satellites. So you can imagine a plane flying along at, I don't know, Mach 8, a Mach 8, Mach 9, going along at that speed, sitting at 36,000 feet or thereabouts, and then trying to track against a geostationary satellite. Wow. It was a marvel of engineering. It just didn't work that well. So yeah, right. there's a new cub, uh, company that's launched a, a satellite constellation now, and they're claiming speeds on planes, on international flights, of up to 195 megabits per second. So That's not too bad. Forget your NBN at home. You go and get on a plane to get some decent NBN speeds or get some decent internet speeds. So they've currently got 110 satellites in orbit, and these are low-Earth orbit satellites, so they're not geostationary. So you only see them if you were on one spot on Earth or on a plane. You'll only see one of those satellites for a few minutes in the sky before you lose sight of that one and the next one comes along. Their constellation in total, they're saying about 650 they'll have when they finally finish this whole network. Uh, 2022, they say it'll be up and running. But it'll be fascinating to see what they do with this. I can see some other uses for this as well, but if they can get better internet on planes when we start flying again, people are so used to being able to do their Zoom calls from home, we can have a plane full of Zoom calls. Who knows? Well, that's it. You know, in 2021, we kind of just expect things to be available to us like 24-7. Yeah. And regardless of being like in international airspace um, and moving at whatever speed, um, we still want to be able to have those creature comforts. Yeah, that's exactly right. So anyway, hopefully that'll get better because it is an expectation that you can just be on the internet wherever you are now, including on a plane at 36,000 feet. It's a crazy world and we live in the future. Moving on to, um, well, quite a sensitive uh, but vitally important topic. Um, who are sex offenders and, for that matter, other criminal types targeting on dating apps these days? Yeah, it is a bit scary. You, you put your information out there on a dating app, you, you talk about yourself and your family, and, and sex offenders have gotten onto the fact that if you're a single parent, you may well have kids at home without parental supervision. The kids might come home from school, for example. Wow. They're old enough that can be in the house by themselves, but it might be a couple of hours till you finish work and then come home. So when people are sharing data, in particular photos of their kids, often there's some data that people don't even realise is there that's tagged on the photo, 
to give a location. So someone might put the information out there, hi, I'm, I'm looking for a date, I'm, I'm single, uh, I've got a couple of kids, because most people would talk about that as part of the package uh, in terms of dating, but they might put some photos up and then sex offenders go looking for these single parents and then they can look, oh, they've left the address details on this photo, I know where to go and knock on a door, maybe at 3.30, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So the Australian Federal Police has put out an official warning about this to make sure that if you're going to post information, make it vanilla, make it bland, strip out any location data. Sure, talk about kids if you've got there, but don't don't put photos of them up there. It's a scary world we live in, and I suppose the thing is just you have to be alert to these things. Well, that's it, and, and we come from this, um, well, uh, a place of, of innocence ourselves. It's a bit like the story of Little Red Riding Hood. We're all, in a way, a bit like Little Red Riding Hood, and we're happily skipping, skipping through the woods of, of the internet um, and, and just um, disseminating this information to the big bad wolves yeah. who are, um, yeah, quite happily just gobbling all that up. It's, um, yeah, it's quite terrifying. I suppose the main message is if, if you met a stranger down the street... You probably wouldn't say, by the way, here's my credit card information, here's my date of birth, here's where I live. You'd probably say, g'day and keep walking. Mm. And that's effectively what people are sometimes doing with their information on not just online dating apps, but on a whole range of social media. They're putting a lot of their information out there. And we're talking about identity, identity theft. Identity theft is another, yeah. another very cruel crime. If you have your credit card stolen, James... It's annoying and frustrating. And you might lose a little bit of money, but usually the banks are pretty good about it. But you get a new credit card. If you get your identity stolen, your name and your date of birth, you can't just go and change those easily. And it is a real problem for people trying to get their identity back. Let's move on to something a little bit lighter. Um, Pretty much all of the internet that we access today is through optical fibres connected to our ISPs. Um, But now satellite access to the internet stands to shake things up quite a bit, yeah? It does. And in Australia, for example, we do have some geostationary satellites, part of the MBN network, that do service certain areas. But the latency you get, the, the, the delay from when you click on something, when it's got to go that 35,786 kilometres up and back down and back up and back down again to you, makes satellite connections not great. They're sometimes not that reliable. They're a bit laggy. The data's not great. But if you change the whole concept and go to low Earth orbit, then it's much better. And the two richest men in the world think it's worthwhile. Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk are battling it out for that satellite connection space in our backyards. Well, there's nothing like a bit of competition, yeah? No, no, not when you've got, you know, a couple hundred billion dollars being, being waged on it there. Yeah, right. So those two, obviously with um, Starlink for Elon Musk and for Amazon for Jeff Bezos, are battling out with a couple of other companies as well. So it's not, they haven't got it all to themselves. They've got Telesat as well and OneWeb. But the idea is that they're launching satellites, not tens or hundreds, but they're talking about thousands of satellites in this low Earth orbit space to try and cover the effectively the whole Earth. The, the two poles are a little bit hard to get to. You start to get a, a bit of a problem when you start trying to get satellites orbiting around the poles and, and getting some connections there. But not many people live there, so it's okay. But there's some trials going at the moment, in particular with Starlink. They've got 10,000 users at the moment using the service, and they're getting download speeds of maybe somewhere around 120 megabits per second. Oh, wow. So again, we talk about those sort of speeds you get with your NBN, and, and this is blowing that out of the water. The real test is going to be when they don't have 10,000 users, but they have 100,000 or a million or 10 million users across the globe. 
I'm just not sure they'll be able to keep delivering in that 120 megabits per second. But it's great testing at the moment. And this testing's been done through US, the Canada, in Canada, and the UK. So it's not just a little tiny pocket of testing. So it's a good sign for all of us in regional areas because you don't have to travel far outside a regional city before you get to the stage where you've got no mobile reception, no MBN, and you've got to rely on these geostationary satellites. So if we can get some of these low Earth orbit satellites, that'll be a huge bonus. But um, I've got a question here. So when you're using optic fibre cable, it's very hard to just jump in and, and access that unless you've got uh, a connection to the end of that optic fibre cable. Whereas with satellite, you've got a bit of an open access, haven't you? And there is, is there uh, perhaps an issue about piracy? Well, I think the technology within those satellites will be clever enough that it won't just be a matter of someone pointing a dish up into the sky and go, bang, I'm, I'm, I'm on this particular one, I'm, I'm on Starlink, I'm on Amazon services. So that security would be something that would keep the CEOs of those companies awake at night making sure they get yeah, that part right. right. But you're, the, the good part is you're right. You can just go to one of those areas, pay your subscription, pay your, your normal fees and connect to these services rather than go, oh, do I have to wait until some fibre cable or some copper cable is run to my house and dig trenches and all those sort of things? That wireless connection is fantastic for low-density populations, which we've got lots of low-density populations in Australia. That's right. Uh, so you don't need that hard connection. No. Yeah, right. All right, now, some big news on the social media platform front. The big headline is, whoops, Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, they're all down in a global outage. This has happened recently, right? Yeah. How did they inform the world that they were having problems? I mean, they're the ones who bring the information to us. When they go down, how do you get your information? Yeah, it's a bit scary, isn't it? And it's interesting. I'm sure some other social media platforms would take great delight in the fact that they had to use one of their competitors, if you like, <laughs> to tell the people of the world that things were happening. So it was a Saturday morning, a recent Saturday morning. If you were jumping onto Facebook, for example, at 4.30am, I know you would have been up on Saturday jumping on there seeing what was happening Absolutely. in the world. <laughs> yeah. Then you would have found that it wasn't working. And, and again, as you said, Instagram, WhatsApp, none of those apps were working. They were down for about an hour and a half. And they actually told the world that they weren't operational via Twitter. So I'm sure the executives of Twitter would have absolutely loved the fact <laughs> that announcements are going out about their competitors on their platform. In other words, hey, Twitter, we're not down. We're out there helping the world stay connected and communicating. But it also tells us how reliant we are in this world now on those social media platforms. When they're down at 4.30am on a Saturday morning, it's still big news. And again, it's obviously a global network we're working with here. So 4.30am in one part of the world might be 8pm in another part of the world, so people across the world are using it, but it's still, you take any of those down for an hour, an hour and a half, that is big news. Yeah, that is very big news, yeah. And and people are just connected, and if anything happens, if anything interrupts their connection, the arms go up and um, we become furious, we yeah. become agitated very, very quickly. Yeah, definitely. A little bit too dependent. Not so long ago, Huawei was going to take over the world, I remember, <laughs> until the West intervened. Yeah. What's the new plan uh, now for them to generate, generate their profits? It's a pretty good way to knock out a company when you get put in the list of banned entities by the US Department of Commerce. That's yeah, always, right, yeah. always a good way to, <laughs> to put a, a little bit of a sour grapes on your uh, profits that you report to your shareholders. But Huawei is one of those. It's been hit pretty badly by the US. Other countries around the world did follow the US in that. Uh, Australia jumped on the bandwagon. All our 5G network that was being rolled out was going to use some Huawei components, and, and that didn't happen. So uh, the phones, they, they were number one in the world for smartphone sales for a time, but now they've started to drop back a bit because of some of these bands. But their latest plan is to use some of the patents they've got. They hold about 20% of the patents, the worldwide patents, for some 5G technology. Wow, so... 
Sorry, 20%? 20%, yeah. My goodness. Yep. So their idea is, well, we're going to let some other phone manufacturers use some of our patents, but we're just going to charge them a small fee. So rather than sell handsets for a couple of thousand dollars, why don't we just sell the ability to use our patent for a couple of dollars? So they're talking about maybe US $2.50 per handset that's using some of the 5G technology that Huawei has a patent over. And, and just the, sell a whole bunch more of those. That's right. Yeah, right. So they're relying on their competitors then to sell a whole bunch. So whether it be the Apples or the Samsungs of the world, if they're using some of that 5G technology, they want to charge a small fee. And there's, there's certainly precedent for this. Uh, back, it was only a couple of years ago that Apple and Qualcomm were in a battle because Qualcomm were wanting to charge Apple $7.50 US per handset because it was using some of their technology. Apple didn't like $7.50. They thought that was too much. So they battled it out in courtrooms. The solicitors probably the only ones that made money out of that process. <laughs> of course. But that was a, a legal battle that went on for a couple of years before that was finally resolved. So again, I think Huawei's pricing it correctly. It's just whether or not other manufacturers will be happy to use their technology rather than develop their own and be happy to keep paying that small amount of money. Well, it's going to certainly create a whole bunch of new pressures. Yeah, definitely. Now, let's talk gaming, Matt. There's some people who'll be looking forward to hearing some news about this. Um, what what do you do when a big manufacturer of a game like uh, that is so enormous, such as Grand Theft Auto, yep. um, when there's an annoying problem and they're just refusing to fix it? Well, what the solution is, is fix it yourself, basically. There's one fan, a very code-savvy fan, who's been working on it because it's so frustrating. GTA Online, which is the multiplayer version, can take up to six minutes to load. And if you're keen to get into your game, six minutes seems like an eternity. So this particular fan got in there and he said, I reckon I can fix this problem. And he worked away at it and he did. And he announced that to the world and he, and he told Grand Theft Auto, or Rockstar is a producer of it, about it. And they actually said, I think you're right. I think you've got a solution <laughs> here. Yeah. Now, they actually pay him some money because... Rockstar has this concept that if you can find a bug in their program, if you can find a security flaw, for example, if, if you report that and it's legitimate, they'll pay you US $10,000. Now, this wasn't identified as a security flaw or a bug, but they were so impressed with this particular fan that they agreed to pay him US $10,000. Now, he might have worked at this for a couple of years, so I'm not sure if that's good payment for it, but yeah, okay. I'm sure he'll be okay with it. Yeah. Um, and, and again, now, this fix that this fan came up with will be rolled out for people. So any of those GTA Online fans out there, your six minutes should be reduced to two minutes or maybe more. And it seemed like such a simple thing, James. All it was was that when you loaded the game, there was a 10 meg file that he found. Not that big a file, but there was a 10 meg file that contained information about all the in-game items you can buy in GTA Online. So it was a bit like a cork in a bottleneck, yeah? Yeah, and so basically he got rid of that 10 meg file and didn't download that when it started the game. And lo and behold, the game started much quicker. Wow. So, yeah, six minutes uh, seems like a long time, and uh, cutting that down to two. But do you remember the old days of the Commodore 64? We'd have to put the cassette tape in, press play, go and make yourself a cup of tea, maybe mow the lawn, and then come back and play your Moonlander. Well, that's if the cassette tape loaded correctly, because it wasn't that reliable. (laughs) It was was a hit and miss, so you go out and mow the lawn and come back and go, I've got to start all over again. So we've got a little bit better than that. So six minutes, we might be sounding like a first world problem there, but it's it's an improvement anyway. It is 2021. Look, Matthew Dickerson, it's been great chatting Tech Talk with you today. So informative and some real thinking points. And to you, the listeners, thank you for tuning in. And on behalf of Matthew and I, we look forward to bringing you back for more next week. Thanks, James.